always better to grow. And I was thinking last night, I said, what if I got up here this morning and I said, so a lot of you committed to grow. You said, hey, I want to be in scripture. I want to be in prayer. Some of the most basic ways that we grow. And I was to ask you, so how are you doing? How are you doing in that? And a lot of us, because we often make commitments and then we're kind of slow to enact them. That's the way I am. How would you feel if I got up here and said, well, hey, you made a promise before God that you were going to commit time to grow, and now you haven't done it, so you lied to God. <laughs> That's a really harsh way to say that, isn't it? Like, if I was to get up here and like seriously said something like this, how, how would that make you feel inside? Like, would you tense up a little bit? If I was to just get up here and like, hey, a lot of you, you were down here, made a commitment to grow, and you were going to read your Bible and, and commit more time in prayer, and you haven't done it. Why did you lie to God? I'm laughing because I know where I'm going. You don't, so you're a little like, um, you, you feel guilty, right? Is that the word? Like, guilt. And it is easy as a pastor, if I wanted to, and I pray we don't, to just get up here and make people feel guilty like you can just make people feel bad because I if I you know you ever had a missionary that came to a church and they start telling their story and they're like well I wake up at 4 a.m. every morning and I pray for all the countries in the world and I pray for at least five hours every day I feel guilty I'm like I, I don't do that but guilt is not a good motivator for growth and how do I know that? Because when I was an addict, I felt guilty all the time, but I didn't change. You can feel guilty, and it does nothing. You just feel guilty. That's it. So what Paul is going to do is his goal is to not make them feel guilty. What you don't need is more guilt. What we need is Holy Spirit conviction. We need the Holy Spirit to begin to work something new in our life. And what's the difference between guilt and conviction? Holy Spirit conviction. Well, guilt comes from the outside. Holy Spirit conviction comes from the inside. So Paul, writing this letter from prison, wanting people to grow. And last week, um, we kind of broke down some of the ways that he was like, hey, here's kind of a system of growth. I, I don't want to systemize it too much, but here's kind of a structure to help you grow. What do you think is going to come next? If he's trying to address a problem, do you think he's immediately going to go into the problem now? Hey, I really want you to grow. I love you. I care for you. Here's the problems that we need to address. Is that where he goes next? Not at all. If you got your Bible, open to Colossians chapter 1. You're cheating. You're, you're way there way too fast. Colossians chapter 1, and I think we're going to be starting with verse 15 here. Yes. If you got it, would you say, I got it? I love this church. Um, well, I'm all messed up here. Let me get this. Everything is... There we go. So this is what Paul starts off with, and if you want to correct things in your life, this is where you need to start. Okay, it's where you need to start. It is the beginning, it is the middle, and it is the end. 
So everything that is necessary for your spiritual growth is going to be summed up here at this section of Scripture. He says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rules or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile himself to all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray as we open up your word this morning that your spirit would be actively involved in changing our hearts and minds that we hold up the very word of God as authoritative over our life, and we ask that you speak to us. We ask these things, your holy name. Amen. So he wants them to get better, and he wants them to grow, and he's going to correct them, but he begins with a reminder of who Jesus is. What a weird place to start, right? Because a lot of times, churches are under the assumption, and even Christians are under the assumption, that we know who Jesus is, and now we're ready to graduate on to deeper things. We want to move on to deeper truths. But Paul is reminding us, you do not graduate from who Jesus is. You can never graduate beyond the truth of who Jesus is. There is nothing bigger than Jesus. There is nothing more important than Jesus. There is nothing that you can have in your life that will help you improve your spiritual walk than remembering who Jesus Christ is. And churches can do this. We can... We can preach the gospel, but then we think if the church really needs to grow, we need to focus on programs, or we need to have a system in place. And what ends up happening is sometimes we begin to put things in the place of Jesus that aren't Jesus. So Paul, it's a very simple reminder, hey, if you want to grow, remember who Jesus is. So I think the question should be, who's Jesus? Because he tells us, we're going to break it down a little bit, but a lot of people have different opinions about who Jesus is. Some people say that Jesus is like a shaman, like he was just a wise man. He was very influential, of course, but he was just a good teacher like Socrates or Plato or something like that. Some people think that Jesus didn't even exist. So if I want to know who Jesus is, the best thing I can do is turn to Scripture from the people who were around Jesus, with Jesus, spent time with Jesus, and knew Jesus. And then not only that, we believe that Scripture has the authority, unlike any other authority, that every word here is God-breathed. That everything written down by Paul is inspired by God. He's not like an autonomous robot that took over and he just started writing, right? But God used his personality and his intellect and his hands and his capabilities to write this letter to us. And here's what he says, verse 15. Let's just walk through briefly what he is saying about Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So if you want to know what God is like, God is not flesh and bones. God, God doesn't have a body like you and I do. God is spirit. So if you want to know what God is like, the only place you can go is Jesus. The only place. Because everybody else has an opinion of what they think God is like, don't they? Celebrities, uh, politicians, whoever it is, they'll say, well, I think God is like this. 
I think God, God's kind of, you know, I've always thought of God like this. Whenever somebody says, I've always thought God is like this, or I think God is like this, the first question should be, by what authority are you telling me what God is like? Because if I just got up here and I told you, hey, I think that God is like this. I do not have a magic eight ball and I can't stick my head in the clouds. I don't know. I have the same limitations that you do. I often say God trying to explain who he is to us is like me trying to explain how my remote control works to my dog. Right? There's just a big gap in between who God is and who I am. And anybody who tries to step into that authority, that position of authority, and says, well, I think God is kind of like this, or I don't think God would do that, the immediate question that should follow, Scripture and verse, please. Like chapter and verse. Where, where do you find that in Scripture? And so if I want to know what God is like, I don't have to imagine and suppose. I know what God is like because we have Jesus. We have God in the flesh coming to earth. And so if you want to know what does God love, just ask what does Jesus love. If you want to know what God disapproves of, what does Jesus disapprove of? If you want to know how a godly person should spend their time, ask how did Jesus spend his time? If you want to know how to deal with difficulty, how would God, you know, if you're going through a difficult time, you say, God, I don't know what to do in this difficult time. A good question to ask is what would Jesus do when he was in his difficult times? How did Jesus respond to difficulty? Do you guys remember if you grew up in church uh, 20 years ago, there was a, a popular um, acronym, I guess, that went around, WWJD? you guys remember that? What, what does that stand for? What would Jesus do, right? And because if you want to know how to be a Christian, because you don't graduate beyond Jesus as a Christian, Christian, the term means little Jesus, right? So all I'm trying to do is be like Jesus. You don't graduate into deeper knowledge. You don't get any deeper than Jesus. And I remember when that uh, was really popular, and we went to Falls Creek one year, and I took all the students, and at Falls Creek, each youth group makes their own t-shirt. And so everybody had these WWJD bracelets, and our t-shirt said H-C-I-D-W-J-D-I-K-W-J-D. And people would walk up, and they're like, what on earth does that stand for? It says, how could I do what Jesus would do if I don't know what Jesus did? Because it's really easy to say, man, I, I just what would Jesus do? And a lot of us haven't spent any time thinking about what would Jesus do. Because we've already, we, we had Jesus to get saved, and then we graduated beyond Jesus. We needed Jesus to save our soul, right? And we loved him for that, we appreciate it. And then we immediately graduate beyond Jesus. We want some kind of deeper truth. But there is no deeper truth than Jesus. It says that he is the firstborn of all creation. What does that mean? The Greek word protokonos doesn't mean necessarily like firstborn, like your firstborn child. It means unique one. right? Israel is the firstborn nation. But there's nations before it. So it doesn't mean like, oh, God created everything and then he creates Jesus as the firstborn. Because Jesus is an uncreated. Jesus exists from all eternity. He is God, right? So the firstborn of all creation does not mean in order. It means there is nothing else like Jesus. But wait, there's more. It says, verse 16, 
For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him, for him, and by him. So everything in this universe exists because of Jesus and exists for Jesus. If you want to really bring that down to like an earthly idea, it means that the wood that Jesus was nailed to was made by Jesus. Right? That the rock that, that, that was rolled in front of the tomb was made by Jesus. So Jesus was killed by the very things that he made. The humans and the instruments used against him. So Jesus is the creator of all things, the sustainer of all things. In fact, if you take Jesus out of the picture, everything falls apart. Nothing can exist or has existed that was not created by Jesus. But wait, there's more. Verse 17, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Uh, so it says, verse 18, it says, he is the head of the body of the church. It's, it's as though Jesus has created this new living thing. Jesus has created something new, this new kind of body. And it's, it's not like the old body that just wars and rages against itself. This new body, he's going to call it the church. And it's made up of many different members. Some are arms, some are legs, some are hearts, some are stomachs, right? I think the Baptists are the stomachs because we do everything over a meal. But no matter what this body looks like, we know one thing, that Jesus is the head of this body. So whenever we gather together, you know that Jesus is the senior pastor of this church. Jesus is the head of the church. He is the head of this body. But wait, there's more. Let's go to verse 21. It says, And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not uh, shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, become a minister. So he talks about how big God is. And I know there's a lot of like words that, I know we've read a lot this morning, so I hope I haven't lost you yet. But he says, how big is Jesus? Bigger than you could ever think. He's the biggest thing imaginable. And he says, and he has lifted you up out of the grave. And he has presented you as holy and blameless. Now, all of this is intentional if he's trying to correct somebody. He says, I know you feel like you are failures. And I'm about to remind you of all your failures. And there's a lot of them. Because the early church gets off track really easy because it's made of who? People. And people are difficult and messy. When I was a new believer, one of the best things somebody did for me, because I had, I had been like really wild and really crazy, and then when I got saved, I swung super legalistic. Like the pendulum swings, you know? Like it goes from one extreme to another. And somebody gave me a book called Messy Spirituality by Mike Iaconelli. And it just reminded me of how messy everybody is. And if you're really interested in being reminded about how good God's grace is, um, The Ragamuffin Gospel is an incredible book that I think everybody should read. But 
he tells them how big God is, and then he reminds them that big God saved you. That big God saved you. He sanctified you. He presents you as holy and blameless. But that's not even the big part of this. I mean, it is. There's nothing bigger than Jesus. But what really astounds me about this section of Scripture is verse 26. He says, The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So I want us to catch this because it's really important and it's really big and it's something that this is not one of the sermons that you go, I instantly get it. This is something that I've had to think about all week and I'm going to be thinking about it for a month. He says, here's how big God is, and he lives in you. He says, Christ in you. This mystery, it's a mystery. How does that work? How can God, how can Jesus create everything, be the God of everything? And he's this big, but he lives in me at the same time. He goes, it's a mystery. And it was revealed first to the Jews and now to the Gentiles. And I hope you get it, because if you get it, you'll change. If you get that, you change. There was a book that I was reading that summed it up this way. And I just, it's one of those sayings, like I just have to think about. He says the gospel is summed up, summed up like this. There's a bottle in the ocean and the ocean in the bottle. Does that make sense to you? So it's an interesting way to think about it. Just imagine if you've ever been out on a cruise ship or if you've ever been out on the ocean, you can look endlessly and it just doesn't end. It just goes on forever. God's love and grace and power and majesty has no end in sight. It goes on forever. And then if you just take a bottle, and you're not supposed to litter litter on a cruise boat, right? You just take it and you throw it into the water. It seems like nothing. And how big the ocean is. But the mystery of the gospel is that somehow the bigness of God somehow lives in you. You become the temple and there is some way that God lives within you. And it's that belief and that understanding that is a motivator for change far greater than me ever making you feel guilty. Understanding that the creator of the universe lives in us. And it's a mystery. These things are confusing, right? Um, To me, it's almost like disorienting. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. I don't know, when was the last time you were disoriented? Like, we took my kids to Branson, I don't know, two years ago or so, and they were a little bit younger, and they wanted to go to the uh, Maze of Mirrors, Right? You ever been to that? You ever seen one of those things? It's just an indoor maze, and it's just full of mirrors. Now, you give them the talk. When you go in there, don't run. So I warned them. I had warned them. But then as they take off, what is one of the first things that happens? Boom, right? Like just smack head first into a mirror. And a part of me enjoys it. I'm not going to lie. Like I find that kind of funny. But it's disorienting to them 
to be in an environment that they're not familiar with, and they run into obstacles. You, if you are a believer, you went from being dead to alive, and there's some ways that it's going to be disorienting. There's some ways that it's going to be somewhat confusing. And the temptation is, is going to be, well, I have Jesus in my life, but I need more. I'm going to need, I need to add all this other stuff to my Christianity in order to grow. And Jesus plus anything ruins everything. Jesus plus nothing is everything. You cannot add to the work and person of Jesus to become more spiritual. You cannot add to the work and person of Jesus to grow more in your faith. In fact, the more time you study just the simple teachings of Jesus and try to live those things out, you will far exceed many people who spent week after week after week at church listening to sermon after sermon, but they never tried to live out what they actually heard. As we were talking with the kids today, a good teacher does two things, shows and tells. Shows and tells. And you are responsible for being the disciple maker of your home and whatever environment that you're in. It's not my job to come to your work and make disciples. There's a reason God has me here and you there. You're better at your job than I am. If I came into your work and tried to do your job, I would get fired immediately, right? So God has you where you were meant to be, doing what he needs you to do, but the goal is to make disciples. You say, well, I don't, know, I don't know the Bible really well. I don't know theology really well. I don't know how to answer all of these questions. Do you know Jesus? Because all you need is to give them Jesus. It doesn't have to be fancy. It doesn't have to be wordy. It doesn't have to be well presented. You just say, hey, look, I used to be lost, but now I'm found. There was a part of me that was dead. And I try to make everything else God of my life, and it didn't work. And then I asked Jesus into my life. And let me just tell you, I don't understand how it works. It worked. It worked. And yes, I'm like a kid in a maze of mirrors. I'm disoriented, and it's a mystery, and I don't understand it all. And I'm running into stuff, but I'm moving forward. I'm growing. And the more I grow, the more true and real Jesus comes into my life. I, um, I opened my Bible up, and there's a toothpick in there. Um, it caught me off guard. I did a funeral for a friend on Friday. Um, he'd passed away. He always had a toothpick in his mouth, so when I did the sermon, I had a toothpick uh, in my mouth. And as I was preparing for his funeral, um, I was talking with his son. He says, you know, he didn't carry his Bible everywhere. He wasn't one of those Christians. Uh, he was at church every Sunday. Um, but he wasn't one of those theology Christians. But in many ways, the man was more Christian than a lot of people I've ever met. He was 73, but the sanctuary, because I've done, I've done many, many funerals. And oftentimes what happens is if somebody passes away when they're young, the, the church is full. And the older somebody gets, the smaller the church gets. Like the, the smaller the group is, that's just because a lot of their friends have passed away before them, right? 
And, and so 73, it, it's, he had lots of life left to live, but he definitely wasn't young. But they had to do the overflow rooms. And the sanctuary was packed. There was at least 300, probably maybe even 400 people there. And the reason was, is because he had invested in every single person there. Every single person. If somebody was sick, he just showed up and mowed your yard. Like, he just showed up. He didn't ask. When we moved from Bristow to Tulsa, I didn't ask for his help. He just showed up, loaded up a truck. Where are we going? He just invested in all of these people. And sometimes I, I, was, I was thinking about his life. I was like, how, I don't know how to love that many people that well. And the truth is, I can't and you can't either. But if God is that big and he resides within you, if you get out of the way, it's incredible what a big God can do through little people. It's incredible. And so whenever I do these funerals, I, I get introspective in my life and I go, because I'm, I'm kind of selfish. I know a lot about myself and a little about others, right? I'm introspective about myself. But, and I go, Lord, I, I want to be more like Larry. I want to impact as many people as possible because life is short. And I can only do that if the bigness of God makes his home in my heart and I somehow allow that to spill out onto others. The overflow of whatever God is doing in your life. If God is at work in your life, you can't help but talk about the good things of God. When I was learning to preach. My dad was teaching me how to be a pastor. I would always ask, well, what am I supposed to preach on now? He'd say, the only thing you ever preach on is the overflow of what God is doing in your life. So God is so big, and he's in you, there should be some overflow. Y'all ever seen the movie Aladdin from Disney? Great cosmic powers, phenomenal cosmic powers. Bitty live in space. Sorry. Let me close with this. I got all thrown off track by that toothpick. Sorry. Um, the wonder of the gospel is that the bottle is in the ocean and the ocean is the bottle. That might not make any sense. Think about it for a week. Think about it for a week. I'm still thinking about it. If you have big problems, if you have big decisions, if you have big addictions, just remember that a bigger God lives within you. And I have seen that big God do incredible things in little people's lives. And my hope, as you're trying to grow in your faith, and we are going to encourage each other to grow together, that when you face obstacles and you get stuck, you don't fall into the temptation of thinking you need to graduate beyond Jesus. If you're lost, go back to the beginning. The neighborhood I was growing up in, uh, I was allowed to ride my bike wherever I wanted to go, right? I could just take off and I would ride. But I would get lost sometimes. But about two blocks from my house was a church. And you could see the steeple from anywhere in the church. And my mom used to tell me, if you get lost, just look for the steeple. Because on top of the steeple is a cross. And I've used that my whole life. Whenever I'm lost, I just go back to the cross. In some way, I find my way back home. 
When you're trying to grow in your faith, you're going to get lost. Just go back to the cross. Go back to the simplicity of the gospel and allow God to change you. I'm going to pray. We'll have a moment of response. I want you to think about, have you tried to graduate beyond Jesus? Have you forgotten how big he is? And is it time to go back just to the simple truths that you learned in Sunday school?